Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The drive to expand access to hallucinogenic plants like peyote and mushrooms could jeopardize access by indigenous people who rely on them for ceremonial use. Cities in some states are decriminalizing the use of psychedelic substances. Indigenous practitioners say that could prompt a rush on the naturally occurring plants they're derived from and make them harder to find. One proposed solution is to include the voices of those who traditionally and sustainably use psychedelics. We'll hear more right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A stretch of highway running through the center of the Blackfeet Nation has been renamed to honor the late Blackfeet Chief Earl Oldperson. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin reports from Browning at the highway's dedication ceremony. A group of more than 200 people gathered alongside the section of U.S. Highway 89 that now bears Chief Oldperson's name. As the new road sign was unveiled, drummers played one of the chief's favorite songs used to celebrate a victory. Several dozen friends and family of Old Person got up to share their favorite memories of the beloved Blackfeet leader, along with members of Congress. State Senator Susan Weber carried the bill to rename this stretch of road. And it feels really good. It's done. We did our best towards our chief. His name will always be here, and it'll always be on the map. Old Person led the tribe for 40 years before he died in 2021. The renaming ceremony is part of the first day of the Blackfeet Nation's North American Indian Days, an annual celebration which will run through the weekend. For National Native News, I'm Ellis Julin. The rate of Indigenous women that died during or shortly after pregnancy more than doubled in recent decades. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports that's according to a new study. The study published in the Journal of the American Medicine Association showed that maternal mortality rates for Native American and Alaska Native women increased by nearly 110 percent between 1999 and 2019. That was the largest increase among all racial groups. Deaths among indigenous women were especially high across the Great Plains. Northern mountain states like Montana were also found to have high maternal death rates among all races. Researchers say it's hard to determine what drove the spike in deaths among Native American pregnant women because death records across the country can vary widely. Researchers say racial disparities among pregnant women can in part be attributed to systemic and interpersonal racism. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. Guatemala celebrated the holiday known as Day of the Army this week, while many indigenous groups marched to commemorate what they called the March of Memory, to remember the thousands of largely indigenous lives lost at the hands of military forces during that Central American country's decades-long civil conflict. Maria Martin reports. Members of the organization Hijos, made up of the children of war victims and their supporters, took to the streets of Guatemala City. They shouted never again and carried pictures of their murdered and disappeared loved ones in honor of the thousands of lives lost during the long civil war that began in the wake of a CIA-sponsored military coup in 1954. 
The so-called March for Memory has taken place annually since 1999, three years after the signing of peace accords ending the 36-year-old civil conflict, in which the government attempted to crush guerrilla uprisings to change this deeply unequal society. The annual commemoration also takes place in opposition to the celebration of the annual holiday known as Army Day. Some in the march call that celebration an insult to the victims of the conflict. It was the military, according to the United Nations, that was responsible for more than 90% of the 200,000 killed and disappeared during one of the longest civil wars in the Americas, in which at least 600 massacres took place and some 400 indigenous villages were destroyed. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes. But you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Indigenous people have history with hallucinogenic plants and certain parts of animals in ceremony and healing. They're considered a sacred element among some tribal traditions. However, those same psychedelics are used recreationally and increasingly medicinally by others. There's growing momentum in this country to decriminalize psychedelics like mushrooms and peyote, and that has indigenous practitioners worried about their ability to access what they consider a sacrament. We'll hear about an instance in Mexico that is a cautionary tale for what can happen when psychedelics become a commodity. We'll also get a guide on the importance of some hallucinogens from a religious standpoint and what the trend is for access and legality. As always, we welcome you to our conversation. If you have knowledge or concerns about ceremonial hallucinogens, or maybe you have questions, call in today. 1-800-996-2848. That's our number, 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in New York is Dr. Yuria Salidwin. She's an indigenous scholar, activist, and senior fellow of the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. She's Nawa and Maya. Dr. Salidwin, welcome to our show. Thank you. From Berkeley, California, we're joined by Marlena Robbins. She's a second-year doctoral student at the School of Public Health there at the University of California, Berkeley. She is Dene. Marlena, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yate to you as well. And 
Dr. Salidwin, I'd like to begin with you and please explain to us how psychedelics are used as medicine by the general population and how that differs from the way indigenous religious practitioners use them. Uh, that's a um, um, difficult question to answer just um, uh, briefly. Uh, and in general, this whole field of uh, what the West calls psychedelics is extremely complex and multi-layered uh, to really um, be able to address uh, within just one conversation. So this is something that has been uh, creating lots of concerns for indigenous nations. But as a nutshell, just by the word psychedelics that the West uses as the manifestation of the mind, the manifestation of the human mind, that's its meaning, contrasts profoundly with the ways, the ontological aspects that indigenous nations use it. Within the indigenous way of being with these sacred medicines, spirit medicines, these are medicines that are connectors to spirit, or what I would say it's the animating principle of life. So it is not anthropocentric view, but rather it represents the kin-centric views of relationality that are brought in indigenous nations worldwide. And with kin-centric, I mean that our relationships with all of living beings, including natural phenomena, as our family, as our kin. So we are close relatives with all that is. So these medicines would allow the possibility of regaining balance from the shifting of uh, the awareness of that close belonging to natural earth systems. So within what the West use as psychedelics, the only benefit that these medicines are focused on is only on the human self, right? It's about addressing issues of depression, anxiety, um, isolation, whatever uh, the, the huge mental health problems that are huge um, or very important emergencies at the moment at the global level, uh, at the social global level, but focusing then again only in the well-being of humans. And yet again, I must say that unfortunately, when I say well-being of humans, we in the West, it is only focusing on the well-being of Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and of democratic origin humans. That is what we call in the scholarly literature as weird groups. So the benefit is returning only to the humans and only to the privileged humans in the West that reach this benefit. So only with that little nutshell, it gives a lot of understanding of how completely contrasting views with mm -hmm. uh, 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 engaging with these spirit medicines between the West psychedelic system and indigenous traditions engaging with spirit medicines. Dr. Sledwin, thank you so much for that thorough introduction there and setting the tone for our conversation today. And I think many times, especially for, for Native people, when we think of, of these types of, of 
sacraments or psychedelics, however we want to refer to them on our show today, we so often think of peyote. But there are, as I understand it, many other types of psychedelics beyond peyote. Can you talk about some of the variety that are that are out there and are used traditionally in ceremony and practice? Yeah, unfortunately, the the uh, studies of these medicines in the West or spirit medicines that we can refer to them as um, okay. is focusing mostly on uh, very unique compounds. The psilocybin compound that is coming from the Teonanacatl, which is the, the uh, sacred psilocybin mushrooms in the Mesoamerican region. The ayahuasca compounds, which are made of different plants, the Banisteriopsis capi and the uh, Chacruna viridis plants, with other compounds that enter into what is made in the medicine. And then um, the Lophophora williamsi, which is the name uh, or, or the um, hikuri. You know, hikuri is the traditional name for uh, the, the peyote cactus. Um, but there are many other traditions, and each indigenous um, tradition have their own spirit medicines as well. Even though there are uh, raising awareness of spirit medicines in, in specific regions, like the ones that I mentioned, the, uh, the ayahuasca is mostly in, within the South America Andean region, um, the in the Amazon region, uh, and then also other, um, like the Iboga uh, root that is coming from uh, the African continent. Um, but each tradition, even though these are the most well-known, let's say, uh, the each tradition have their own use of sacred medicines. And many uh, nations seeing what has uh, become with the uh, great interest or, or the, um, the uh, raising demand for these specific uh, spirit medicines have become really careful to not name the, the sacred plants and their use uh, in the traditional communities, which I will respect and continue the practice okay. to, in order to protect those medicines from access and then to, uh, to have the same outcomes that are occurring right now within these other medicines that I just mentioned. Okay. So, and I'm glad... I'm sorry, I'm glad you mentioned that, how protecting these names, because that's a focus of our show today here is this push to expand these spirit medicines, as you describe them, into states and cities. And are, what are your concerns going forward with regard to the possibility that that could reduce the supply available to traditional healers and others who want to use these spirit medicines for ceremony and such? Uh, there are very concrete problems uh, that, uh, that we have identified, and for that also I'd, I'd love to, um, to point to your audience to a paper that was uh, published last December. Uh, that The name is Ethical Principles of Traditional Indigenous Medicine to Guide Western Psychedelic Research and Practice, which was published in the Lancet uh, Regional Health Americas, uh, in which we identified different ethical principles to guide uh, the, the practice and um, field of, of Western use of spirit medicines. 
Uh, and uh, not only do we identify the problems and concerns that are more salient in these areas, but also some of the solutions that can be also uh, implemented in order to counteract the the continuation of these violations of rights. So within these eight principles, uh, there are overarching eight uh, principles within four different uh, scopes. One is the acknowledgement of the of the um, indigenous traditional knowledges and practices that are actually the origin of Western psychedelic medicine. And with this, I say that even though some of the uh, the medicines that are being used within the psychedelic field have been developed in the lab, it can arguably be said that the development of the field of psychedelics had its origin from the traditional medicines of indigenous peoples, which have not uh, received any acknowledgement uh, uh, formally in, in the West, and that uh, it's actually driving the use of um, psychedelic medicines. Um, the problems as well within this specific one is uh, that, the, as I mentioned earlier, the focus that brings these medicines that are communal in origin, collective in origin, or kin-centric, bringing them into anthropocentric sense. But there are many other uh, problems within uh, the, the field, mainly that the free prior and informed consent, which is one of our main indigenous rights in the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, is very rarely uh, respected. And it's most time also misunderstood how to really use it within uh, or address it within uh, the psychedelic field. Communities of origin are rarely, if Almost not always, uh, not almost. Dr. Uh, Salidwin, never. I'm sorry. We're, we're going to have to go to break here, but I'll let you finish when we come back. Okay. Short break. Tribes in California warned state transportation officials more than two decades ago that a proposed highway expansion crossed sacred grounds. Now, after workers found remains of multiple relatives, the $70 million project is shut down indefinitely. We'll talk about what went wrong with the Owens Valley Highway Project and the next Native America Calling. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about psychedelics and indigenous access to hallucinogenic medicines today, spirit medicines perhaps. Give us a call to share your thoughts and comments on the air. Do you see promise in psychedelic medicine? Do you think it should be a resource for tribes to tap for economic development? Or maybe you're from a tribe that doesn't have a cultural connection to hallucinogenic plants and you have concerns. Share any of your insights at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Phone lines are open. 
On the line is Dr. Yuria Salidwin. And Dr. Salidwin, you were explaining before break uh, the role and um, how some of this access to these spirit medicines is um, is difficult for Indigenous people. Please continue what you were saying. Um, yes, Sean, thank you. Uh, and I, I was trying to address the concrete problems that are being raised uh, within the Western-based psychedelic research, the programs that are uh, being uh, developed for training, and also the, the uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies that are also becoming more and more um, coveted in the in the West, but how these different ways of relating within the West decontextualize and capitalize on indigenous uh, heritage, tangible and intangible heritage. Um, our uh, indigenous ceremonies, our rituals, our um, traditions, principles and ideas uh, are being used without the free prior and informed consent that, as I was mentioning, is one of the most important indigenous rights, um, and how these communities, uh, uh, the communities of origin, relate with these practices. Um, but there are also other problems uh, that, that I want to mention that have been generated by uh, the excessive pattern of consumption of these medicines in the communities of origin and then also abroad that um, have uh, also related to cultural appropriation and, and then again with the um, uh, capitalization, commodification of our indigenous traditions um, with the sharp increase of, of use uh, uh, and and nowadays, unfortunately, with with corporate use as well, advocating for uh, their benefits without mm -hmm. first realizing and looking for ways of uh, repairing the perpetuation of violations to our rights as indigenous peoples. So okay. uh, the the basic access to our health services uh, and minimum, we, we don't have most times uh, access to our own indigenous systems most many times in countries that continue to be persecuted or superseded to western systems of medicine um, and indigenous health continues to be um, more problematic for access for our own peoples within the world there are places in which indigenous peoples have as uh, much as 20 years less of life expectancy because of lack of this access. In the US alone is six years less of life expectancy, which is the lowest in all ethnic groups in the United States. And all of these also uh, have repercussions that are coming from the capitalization of our um, traditions. Okay, okay, thank you so much, Dr. Salidwin. And earlier you mentioned uh, psilocybin and uh, it's good timing because our producer, Andy Murphy, spoke with Dr. Osiris Garcia Cerqueda, who is a history professor at the Meritorious Autonomous University of Puebla. He is Mazatec from Huautla de, Jemez, de, excuse me, Huautla de Jimenez in Oaxaca, Mexico. And he's speaking with Andy through an interpreter, Ivan Garcia, who is with the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, and they're talking about access to this sacred psilocybin mushroom in his community. So the Mazatec people use uh, psilocybin mushrooms for the treatment of mental, spiritual, and uh, physical diseases or aliments, and they can go to a healer 
which they call the chontachine, and the, they go to them to orient them and get a type of diagnostic. It became known worldwide, and many people started coming, started buying mushrooms for locals. But many times they weren't really interested in the in the traditional ceremony. They were just interested in eating the mushrooms. So it became a commodity. The mushrooms were suddenly a thing that could be sold. And then there started being this uh, competition, you could say, to sell the mushrooms and who could get more to sell. Uh, people started calling themselves healers. So uh, this has uh, brought like an influx of this type of tourism into the region for many decades and has uh, strongly uh, um, influenced the the community in many ways, nature and the ecosystem around the area affected in a way that less uh, mushrooms are available. And these are also due to things like globalization and things like uh, expansion of, of, of urban um, cities uh, that is also causing this damage to the biodiversity and thus to the the amount of mushrooms that are available in the wilds. What are the Mazatec people doing to defend this mushroom and defend their rights to access this mushroom? The Mazatec people have always protected ceremonies and their culture in general. Many of the traditional healers, they also understand that it is very important not to share. They believe that it is important not to share their knowledge just with anybody or very easily. So they are actually very protective of their culture, uh, very protective of their traditions still today. How can the Mesotech people balance their ancestral knowledge and access to medicine with the what's been called the psychedelic renaissance? He says that even though they hold to their tradition and some of them are very reserved, that doesn't stop them from sharing because they believe that the medicine is for the world to use and for everybody. So it should be available. Since the um, people started coming, there has been a misuse of information. It's not that the community is angry necessarily. There should be a respect and a mutual uh, sharing relationship and that we could search for ways in which people can come learn things, but also teach things to the community about how to move forward in holistic approaches to mental health and holistic use of these plant medicines. That was Dr. Osiris Garcia Cerqueda, history professor at the Meritorious Autonomous University of Puebla in Mexico. Folks, what we're learning about here today with regard to issues such as psychedelic tourism is that there is medicinal use that these spirit medicines are being tapped for and also recreational uses. And what we want to talk about now is what type of research is being done with regard to spirit medicine and specifically through an indigenous lens. And to do that, we're joined now by Marlena Robbins, who is in Berkeley, California. She's a second year doctoral student at the School of Public Health at Berkeley. She is Dene. Marlena, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. Well, please tell us, how did you come to study spirit medicines, psychedelic medicines, and, and why are they specifically important to you now? Mm, okay. Um, thank you for that question. So my journey within the, the plant medicine started with um, sobriety. And really, that was my healing journey. That was the start of my healing, uh, really questioning my relationship with alcohol, what it was doing to my body, my relationship, um, and how it was the path that it was leading me down. So once I found sobriety, I started um, incorporating art in the creative process, and that became a new form of medicine and um, really advocating for art in indigenous mental health. And then I knew that I needed more work. I needed to do more work on myself and really understanding this trauma and where it was coming from and the, the trauma that my family was holding and where you know, the source of it, what, what is it, who, what, when, where, how, why. And so started going to counseling and therapy. And my uh, partner um, asked if I had ever sat with mushrooms and um, I was open to it. I remember my mom talking about it when I was little and um, talking about her, her mushroom journeys and her, her acid trips and just never thinking that I would ever have access to that, that there were just stories like kind of relics or the dinosaurs almost just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it. So um, he brought the mushrooms and we sat with them, prayed with them. I talked to them. I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to heal my family, show us what we need to do to heal, help us. And, and it was beautiful. I mean, the first, the first experience was that reminder of love, like love is still intact. It's still a part of, of us of my family. It's, it's still very much protective of us and, and a part of um, who we are. And so from there, I was able to sit with my mom and have a beautiful, powerful experience that changed the entire trajectory of my life. I started um, researching cultivation methods, researching microdosing, which is small increments of psilocybin mushrooms, um, based off of the stamate stack, so lion's mane and, and niacin in a pill form with, with the mushroom, um, incorporating some type of regimen, so meeting the medicine halfway, like working mm -hmm. out and eating healthy and being very conscious of my the things that I watch and, and listen to and read, um, really incorporating a healthier lifestyle to meet the medicine halfway. And so um, my dad, he uh, grew up in Fort Defiance, Arizona. He... Um, I was diagnosed with stage four liver and gallbladder cancer, and I was able to talk to him about the research being conducted with psilocybin mushrooms and end-of-life cancer patients. And we had the medicine on hand. Um, he didn't do it, and I think that that was in large part to the Nixon administration and the Vietnam War, the vilification of these medicines turning into Schedule One substances, and and he just it just went against his his moral um, compass. So. It was the fact okay. that he had it as an option. Um, and that, that is what really um, drove me to, to this research, is that um, there are Dineh people who are exposed to uranium mining radiation, developing cancer later on in, life, in their lives, and don't have this as, as even an option. It's not even a conversation. So that right there was what um, drove me to this, to this uh, research. Okay. Marlena, thank you for that for that story. And and you mentioned your father who chose not to partake in in these medicines. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that because 
you know, there is in, in some circles negative connotations that are associated. And you mentioned the Nixon administration. I, I think a lot of people right away when they hear the term psychedelic, they immediately think, oh, 1960s and Woodstock and just people on these bad trips. I mean, you even used the word acid trip yourself. And is that part of your work to also demystify and just better educate people about what these medicines are really all about? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, that is a part of my fellowship with the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Um, I research a qualitative research, uh, multi-generational perspectives of psilocybin mushrooms in urban indigenous communities. And it's really to gain a full spectrum, a full range of perspective when it comes to um, specifically psilocybin mushrooms, but eventually I would love to do psychedelics as a whole from um, I, the earth-based medicines, ayahuasca, peyote, um, mushrooms, of course, and then the, the more um, lab-created medicines, uh, ketamine, X, uh, MDMA, LSD. But to, to really demystify um, the perception of indigenous people in psychedelics as being these very, uh, how would you say, like, um, I think indigenous people within psychedelics Become, it becomes a very homogenous identity of mm. um, being these very spiritual beings who can be one with earth and talk to the animals, which we can. Like, we, we can do those things. We are tapped into those energies, but that's not all of us. And I think it's important <laughs> to see indigenous people as, as real contemporary modern human beings who are influenced by religion, politics, popular culture, um, and, and, and other types of cultures, other types of religions and spiritualities, and that we're not all on the same page when it comes to these medicines. So there can be a very conservative perspective of, like, those aren't our medicines. They don't belong to us. That that's for their culture over there. and Or, or it might go against their religion. It might go against their, um, their belief in our healthcare systems and being more tied to uh, Western medicine. Um, and then on the other side of it, this very liberal perspective of, being open to maybe sitting in ceremony or um, experiencing them at Woodstock or at a music festival or on a hike or with family, with friends, and, and being open to, experience, to, to exploring our inner self and in, um, in a more maybe ceremonial setting, healing with family. And that, that's something that Dr. Um, Salidwan was talking about was the individualistic behavior of these medicines in, in a Western clinical setting. And then the communal um, part of these of these medicines in healing as a collective, healing our families, healing our communities, um, and and so and then everybody in between. So like, you know, somebody who is curious but doesn't know and is being swayed back and forth and wanting to understand, you know, where does where do they fit into this whole um, entheogen entheogenic uh, psychedelic uh, movement that's taking place right now? Sure. Sure. These are all really good points, Marlena. And earlier, Dr. Salidwin mentioned how these can be used to treat depression and anxiety. And you mentioned using them uh, in your efforts to combat or, or to embrace sobriety. But I also want to ask you, I mean, what are the risks that are associated with these types of medicines? And would you feel safe recommending them to any Native person who might be suffering from depression or anxiety or on the road to sobriety? I think, I think proper consultation with 
Indigenous people is needed now more than ever because Indigenous people, Indigenous cultures have, Indigenous science has created ceremony, songs, stories, prayers, languages that are tied to these medicines and the medicines themselves are living, breathing, conscious beings. And I think that they are the ones who advise us as to how they should be sat with, how they should be taken. And I think that having that knowledge um, is, it creates a vessel, it creates a, a, a place and a time to sit in protocol, to sit in ceremony and be able to safely take these medicines. So I think mm -hmm. that like if a person who's going through um, addiction or depression or anxiety, um, that, that that consultation, those efforts, the preparation for sitting with the medicine and knowing that we're about to, to embark on this whole other journey that's an intergalactic uh, journey that needs to be navigated by people who know what they're doing. Okay, because okay. We're going to have to take a break, Martelena, but I appreciate you mentioning it to people who know what they're doing, because I'm thinking of somebody who might be listening to the show right now and might not have access to a ceremony, might not have access to a traditional healer, but they might be thinking, but geez, maybe these would help me. Maybe I could just do this on my own. We're going to talk more about that right after this break, folks. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. This is Native America Calling. We're talking about indigenous psychedelic medicine, and there's still time for you as a listener to join this conversation. Are you concerned about indigenous access to medicines like mushrooms or peyote? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848 to join today's conversation. And we are speaking now with Marlena Robbins, who's a doctoral student in the School of Public Health in Berkeley. And Marlena, you were talking earlier about the importance of using plant-based medicines, such as the ones we're describing today, in a ceremonial setting with people who understand, indigenous people who understand how they are properly used. But as, the, as I posed before going into break, what about somebody who is listening to our show right now and might not have access to a traditional healer. Maybe these types of plant medicines are not part of their cultural heritage. They don't have that type of network to tap into to learn about these things. What do you tell that person who's listening to the show today who's thinking, geez, maybe I should try mushrooms to help with my issues, mental health issues? Mm. I, the first thing is research. Research, research, research. Um, take your time getting to know the medicine, getting to know yourself and what ailments you have, whether it's depression, anxiety, like the medicine is only a part of it. It does, it's not a cure-all. It's not gonna fix everything for the individual or for the person. It's really how the person is gonna show up for the medicine and, and the work that they're willing to put in to, to have that um, experience. 
because the, their work, there's work that goes in prior to sitting with the medicine. That's a lot of reflection, a lot of um, internal reflection, really acknowledging our, our habits, our good habits, our bad habits, our eating habits. Um, whether that we're struggling with addiction or, you know, where is that coming from? Because there's, there's a source of that. And so um, a lot of reflection, time, research, patience, so much patience, and, and outreach and finding communities um, that, that are willing to open up about their experiences with these medicines and how to navigate. So um, there's different organizations out there, MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic um, Sciences, I believe, uh, there's Shakruna Institute, there's uh, the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. So there's so much research out there um, taking place. Well, Marlena, thank you for all of those insights and, and sharing your experience. And I know you mentioned earlier how it's important it is to implement this with exercise and diet. So what's really come across loud and clear today is that this has to be a holistic approach with regards to these medicines in conjunction with other positive lifestyle activities and such. And I'd like to now bring in a third guest who is joining us from Occidental, California, Miriam Volat. She is the co-director of the River Sticks Foundation and interim director of the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, Miriam, welcome to our show. Thank you, Sean. Glad to Ab be here. Absolutely. Wonderful to have you, Miriam. And I, I understand there was a first ever psychedelic conference that just took place last month in Denver. And tell us more about that. Specifically, what we're interested in is some of these legal issues now that are at play with regard to Native people and their access and use of these types of plant medicines. Mm. Well, um, the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund that I'm the interim co-director for um, was formed uh, almost three years ago now um, at the request of some Indigenous traditional knowledge holders and um, who have, you know, heritage relationships with some of the medicines that are being impacted by the increased interest in psychedelics, spirit medicines. Um, and um, one of the really important pieces that they feel is essential in order to really ensure a future where Indigenous people, their medicines, their knowledge are protected and conserved um, during this time of a lot of increased interest is that um, their voices need to be lifted up in unusual spaces like the MAPS conference. And so, you know, as some of our partners um, in IMC said, it's kind of like going into a very foreign land or even almost uh, enemy territory um, and just being able to put the message down that it's really, really important that if this renaissance or mental health movement is not going to be just yet another extractive industry, another kind of wave of, um, you know, sort of commercialization of um, things that are sacred and precious and a stealing of land and knowledge and all of that, that they have to go into these places and remind people um, 
that the way that they conduct this, you know, sort of growing interest, um, some people are even calling it an industry already, and it probably is, that um, there's still a possibility that if indigenous traditional knowledge voices are given authority, if those communities are strengthened, their governance processes are strengthened, um, their access to land and where medicine grows, their ability to connect and reconnect um, culturally and ecologically to their medicine, that conservation efforts are built in at every level, considered at every level, um, and supported, um, that their, you know, sort of knowledge and also heritage rights to these medicines are given authority, um, that um, there's a chance that this won't, you know, essentially just be another colonial wave. And so mm-hmm. I think that's why um, our leadership wanted to be there. Um, and I think that speaks directly to, you know, basically policy, research, all of the changes that are happening um, if they're not considering um, indigenous heritage, um, knowledge, rights, um, the conservation of the medicines themselves, okay. um, then they're really missing the point. <laughs> Miriam, these medicines are, are legal in states such as Colorado and Oregon, and, and I want to talk about what that means for indigenous access. But before we do that, let's go to the phones where we have Pablo who is listening on the Tohono Autumn Nation in Arizona on station KOHN. Hello, Pablo. Hey, how are you doing, Chief? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. How about yourself, Pablo? All right. I'm sitting out, out here in the Arizona District, 113, but I'm sitting under uh, Ramada. I don't, I don't <laughs> care how hot it is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. What do you know about uh, spirit medicines, Pablo? Okay, I listen to everybody. Well, like, like out here in the Stone Autumn Nation, uh, we are like uh, somebody gets sick or anything like that. Uh, we use uh, the the hawks, the hawk feathers, mm-hmm. or the coyote tail, or the owl's uh, feathers. If we find an eagle. We uh, do what they call they call it a whistle. That means kind of swipe everything off their off their body. Some of them they try to take them to the hospital and they don't get well, so bring them home. So that's what we use. And also the uh, what they call um, there's a black black bird that flies around and said uh, don't don't ever let that come around. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's what I want to let you know, and uh, I know that I'm, I'm I'm getting down to a point where I think I think I'm going to do what they're doing. Even uh, 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 I'm getting down to where uh, when a wo- woman is pregnant, okay, to uh, to uh, use one of those feathers to. Let the child come out good, because uh, okay. there's a lot of, lot of, lot of kids. Uh, I mean, a lot of these mothers lost their uh, kids. Okay, that was Pablo, uh, Tohono Autumn Nation, there, Southern Arizona, talking about 
uh, indigenous medicines, hawk feathers, coyote tails, good stuff there from Pablo. Thank you for calling in. And Miriam, I want to go back to you now. And again, this whole issue with regard to conservation and access and how some of these medicines are legal now in states and it's possible they could be legalized in more states. What does that mean for indigenous practitioners? Mm. Well, I mean, it depends on where you are and it depends on what medicine and it depends on, it depends on a lot of things. But um, one example, well, two examples in Colorado that I would bring up would be Iboga and peyote. So, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years of Iboga being used to address a lot of um, PTSD concerns and vets, Iboga has also, the populations have dramatically declined. And um, Witi people in Gabon now have to travel long distances in order to get the medicine that they use for their way of life. And so in a place like Colorado, it's unequivocal that um, in the regulatory process, people have to be paying attention to um, sourcing, where things are coming from. They have to, like Yuria mentioned, um, engage in free prior and informed consent about where these medicines come from. And so just because it's legal doesn't mean it's all okay and that there isn't other steps that need to be gone through. Um, I believe um, Colorado actually left peyote out, which is really important because in the United States, we know that not only is um, peyote ecologically have incredible pressures on it from oil industry, agriculture, overharvesting, poaching, um, but also we have the ERFA amendments, which protect the use of Native American people. And it's really important that we don't put policies in place that, um, that jump um, the protections that, you know, Native American church and um, ABNDN people really rely on as one of the last um, kind of rights they have um, to protect their spirituality, their culture, their way of life. So um, I would just say that, you know, in all these decriminalization efforts or policy change efforts, we have to listen to uh, Native community leaders, spiritual leaders, cultural leaders about how to both ecologically, culturally, respectfully, consent-wise, um, not, you know, jump just having good, respectful engagements with each other. Miriam, earlier on the show... I don't know if that show, answered your question. <laughs> no, no, it does. And, and I think it, it helps for our, our listeners to understand that certain Native people uh, have the right to use peyote and to harvest peyote uh, as a spiritual resource, uh, which allows them in some cases to access this stuff. But I also want to bring back this question that we posed earlier with regard to the possibility or potential of some of these medicines being a resource that tribes could potentially tap for economic development. Any efforts or thoughts about commercializing some of these medicines and growing them on farms in a way to control their use and also their distribution for Native people? I think it's a really excellent question. And 
I think it's one, I think Marlena said it really well, where, you know, sometimes in Western culture or dominant society, we kind of put Indigenous people or Native Americans in a monolith, and it's really not that way. Um, so I think there are really incredible opportunities for that, but it would unequivocally have to come from the communities themselves. And, um, you know, some of these medicines, um, in my very short time and as an ecologist supporting their conservation, there are real cultural norms against commercializing sacred medicines. So I think it's really going to depend on, you know, which ones and what community and um, but, you know, I think, you know, Marlena mentioned growing psilocybin, you know, that seems to be one where a lot of that's happening already. Um, I think peyote, there's a lot of cultural, cultural norms against commercialization. Um, but, you know, there are other medicines that I could imagine, you know, certain communities that felt good about it and went through a good process being able to um, you know, do that should they should they chose should they choose? But I okay. I think it's complicated because these are sacred these are sacred medicines and and so you know what I hear a lot from the partners that we support through Indigenous Medicine and Conservation Fund is one of the one of the problems one of the places where disconnection actually comes in in the communities is is through commercialization. Um, but I think there is exploration too with like healing centers or clinics or addressing uh, alcohol use disorder. Um, I know in the Amazon there's several different tribes that are looking at having um, clinics where people can come and really uh, get remedied and um, really get support and it can bring income into the community. Maybe they're not paying for the medicine directly, but they're paying for the food and the support. And so there are people exploring how that can be done um, in a kind of an ethical way that's kind of in alignment with the traditional and spiritual values around how the medicine is shared. Well, that is unfortunately all the time we have for today's conversation. But before we wrap up, I want to thank all of our guests today, Dr. Yuria Salidwin, Marlena Robbins, Miriam Vallat, and Osiris Garcia Cerqueda for what's been an illuminating Indigenous-led conversation on psychedelics. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. And the president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe, enjoyable weekend. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. 
It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.